Chapter 2 of The Man Who Missed It by W. H. H. Murray. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 2 It is sixty years next March since a babe, lashed to a broken spar, was washed ashore on the eastern coast. That babe was myself. I came out of the storm, John Norton, and I came out of the depths. A ship was wrecked that night, and not a man was saved, nor a woman either. Only a babe. What was the ship's name? What was the name of her commander? Who owned her? Or from what port she sailed? None ever knew. Whether she came from the east or the west, none might tell. In the midst of the ocean, in the midst of darkness, in the midst of storm, she went down, and I alone was saved. Do you know anything of the sea, John Norton? The old man kept his silence a moment before answering, and without lifting his eyes he said solemnly, Yes, friend, I know something of the sea. Do you hate it, John Norton? asked the man with explosive earnestness. The Creator made it, replied the trapper, and the reverence of the tone more than the words constituted the answer. I care not who made it, almost shouted the man. I care not who made it. I hate it. It is wild and wrathful and savage. It thirsts for man's life and reaches up the hands of its power only to grasp and destroy. Its smoothness is a deceit, and when it stretches out in its calmness, it stretches out as a lie. It entices man from the shore. It calls him from the bay. It beckons him with its breezes from the safety of the harbor. But when once it has got him out upon its great surface, out from the harbor and the bay and the land where he was safe, then it rises up in its anger, dashes at him in his hate, clutches him with its billows, and drags him down, down, down into its hideous depths. Think of the men, John Norton, who have gone down into it. Think of the brave ships that it has swallowed up. Think of the women and children. Mothers with their babes, the strong and the tender alike, the wealth and the beauty and the glory of man it has engulfed. Who can look at the surface of the sea and not think of its bottom, of the wrecks that are there, the bones of the dead, and the hideous things, the dreadful children of its depths, that live and sport among them? Oh, I hate the sea, John Norton, as a man hates the murderer of his father and the destroyer of his mother. For in its depths my mother and father lie, and there they have lain for sixty years, lain in that graveless grave, in that tomb without spot and without name, and I have borne the burden of their untimely loss with all the misery it entailed, till my head is whitening. Here the man paused a moment. The flash of excitement died out of his face and the fingers which had been nervously twitching became still. In a moment he asked, speaking in a low and gentle tone, Is it not pleasant, John Norton, to know where your parents are laid after death? Certainly, said the trapper. Even the Hurons make their graves with some sign, and I've seen many a young chief go to the grave of his father and lament arter his fashion. Is there any grave that it would be pleasant for you to visit, old trapper? There be a grave under a pine tree on the shore of the Sound in the state of Connecticut, 
that it would be sort of cheerful-like to look at again, and I have conceded that the pups and me might make a journey in that direction next summer, unless the boy that be living comes into the woods. Still, it's no great matter, continued the trapper. I often tell sport there that it's no great matter, for I know that the boy sees that it's well kept. Yes, it is pleasant, said the man, for the children to visit the graves of their parents. In the cities the living take great pains with their graveyards, and lavish their money to make them beautiful. And many a time I have been, when I was weary and hungry, and stood at the entrance and seen those who were left come to visit the graves of those who were gone. Many of them brought flowers, and I have followed on after them, and seen them go to the graves of their parents, and lay the flowers on the mounds. I forgot my weariness as I looked, and my hunger too, John Norton. It was a blessed sight. I could imagine the comfort and the consolation they found in doing it, and more than once have I leaned my head on some marble slab and wept that I myself might never see my parents' graves, never see where my father was laid, nor let fall the tribute of my tears on the mound beneath which my mother slept. It is a dreadful thing, John Norton, not to have even a grave to love on the earth. It is a worse thing yet not to know what your father's name was, old man, but I have never had a grave to love, and I have never known my father's name, nor do I know my race or the country where they lived. Here the man paused again. Long and earnestly he gazed into the fire, while his mind wandered back to the time of his earliest recollections. He even allowed to pass unnoticed the mute caress of his dog that twice rubbed his head against his knee, twice lapped his hand with his tongue, twice looked into his face, but receiving no notice from his preoccupied master, turned his own face sorrowfully away, as if he felt his inability to relieve his master's spirit from the burden that was on it. "'You said you was washed ashore when you was but a little babe,' said the trapper, at last breaking the silence. "'Yes,' said the man, "'I was washed ashore, washed ashore at the break of day. The sea that had swallowed up my parents rejected me. The waves that had murdered them cast me as if in mockery upon the beach, unhurt. A fisherman found me, took me to his hut, and there I was reared. They gave me a name, no matter what the name was. They had no right to give me a name. Those who could name me were dead. Do you think anyone but a parent has a right to name a child, John Norton? I suppose they did the best they could, replied the trapper. They'd got to call you something and I suppose they did the best they could. Perhaps they did, said the man. Did they treat you well? queried the trapper. No, they beat me, and kicked me, and cursed me, he replied in a tone that bordered on bitterness. Why did they beat you? asked the trapper. They beat me, answered the man, because I was not theirs, because I came to them unsought, came to be a burden to them, I was there plague and torment, because they did not love me. All children that are not loved are plagues and torments. Only love can find happiness in the wants of a child. Only love can bear with patience the toils by day and night that the coming of a child brings to a house. They did not love me because I was not theirs, and had no right to be where I was. I do not blame them. What right had I to be? 
They were poor. What right had I to eat their bread? They owed me nothing, and yet they had to give. But you certainly could help them arter you were growed, said the trapper. It don't take long for a boy to get big enough to earn the little he eats and the little he wears. I never earned a cent for them, retorted the man. Not a cent did I earn for them. That wasn't right, said the trapper. Why didn't you make the best you could of your lot and work for your living, as other boys has to? Because, replied the man, their work was on the sea, and I would not put my foot in a boat. And when they used to drag me aboard, I used to scream and cry and crouch down in the bottom. I was so frightened to go out upon the sea. Why was you so frightened to go out upon the sea? queried the trapper. Because, almost shouted the man, I saw dreadful things in the sea. I saw ships going down, sinking, sinking, mile after mile into its depths, with their masts all standing and sails all set and men and women on their decks. And I used to see great and horrid creatures swimming about in the depths, things with mouths bigger than their bodies, things that eat nothing but men and women and children that the sea sends down to them, things with great eyes that leered at me and winked at me, things with claws that kept reaching up after me, claws that opened and shut, as if eager to get a hold of me and pull me down that they might eat me up. And I never went out upon the sea that I didn't see a man and a woman lying at the bottom, lying side by side with their hands clasped tightly together, while the great hideous creatures of the sea were swimming around them and over them. And I knew that the man was my father, and the woman was my mother, a father without a name, and a mother that I knew not what to call. And I used to shriek and scream and crawl under the thwarts of the boat, crazy with fear. And when I got ashore, I would run into the woods and keep running till I fell down for weariness. That is why I didn't work for them, because their work was on the sea and I could not go upon the sea because I saw such dreadful things in it and was so frightened. What did you do, finally? asked the trapper. Do? said the man. I ran away. I ran away from the house that was never a home to me, from the house that had no father and mother in it, from a house where I had no right to be, a boy without a home, without father or mother, without a country, without a name, and without a friend. Where did you spend your childhood? asked the trapper. Childhood? God in heaven, almost screamed the man. I never had a childhood. How could a boy without father or mother, without a home, without anyone to love him, have a childhood? I was old when I was young. I had no mind as a boy, no heart as a boy because I had no surroundings to draw a boy's mind out or make a boy's heart feel. Where did you get your vittles? interrogated the trapper. Food. I never had much food. I ate roots and nuts and berries and apples for years. I never ate at a table unless by chance. I had none to provide for me, and so I provided for myself. I found what I could, and I stole what I couldn't find. "'Stole to satisfy my hunger. "'Do you think that was stealing, John Norton?' "'I conceit not,' said the trapper. "'Leastwise I conceit that the Lord keeps a 
kind of private reckoning in such cases, and sort of eases up on it in the judgment. If there be justice in heaven, it is so, said the man, for no man can sin without knowledge, and I had no knowledge of right and wrong, and my acts were acts of necessity. Did you ever see a dog steal a piece of meat, old trapper? Certain, responded the trapper. Rover had a great appetite as a pup, and I had to learn him the commandments with earnestness. I didn't mind his little thievings, for a pup is a pup, and he will have his pranks. But I came into the cabin one day, and he had not only cleaned the kettle of the soup, but he had a roll of tenderloin in his mouth nigh as big as his body, and I tended to his education on the spot, and gave him the ideas of right and wrong as clear as I could with the help of a moccasin. I meant said the man in earnestness of whose expression the humor of the trapper had not lightened a shade. I meant to ask you if you ever saw a starving dog steal a piece of meat. Certain, certain, answered the trapper. The dogs of the Injuns are always starving, and I have consorted with the redskins enough to note their habits, and few be the movements of life about their villages that my eye hasn't seen. Then you know how I used to steal, John Norton. I used to creep up on things. I used to crawl in the grass after things, like a thieving cur driven by starvation, but frightened at every motion I made lest I should be detected. Yes, I used to steal because I was gaunt with hunger, and the wants of my stomach made me a thief. Your lot was a hardin, that's a fact, said the trapper. Did they ever catch you? Yes, they caught me, answered the man. He said no more, but his eyes darkened, and his brows lowered over them in wrath. "'What did he do with you?' asked the trapper. For a moment the man made no reply. His fingers worked convulsively, and his body actually trembled, and then he said suddenly, almost fiercely, "'John Norton, do you know what a poorhouse is?' "'I have known a great many cabins scant of meat,' said the trapper, "'when the hunting was poor, and I've seen the redskins starving in their tents, and—' I don't mean that, said the man. I don't mean that. Do you know what the poorhouses are that the towns and the cities build for those who are too unfortunate or too weak or too aged to earn their living? I don't understand you, said the trapper. I will tell you, said the man, what a poorhouse is. It is a house which the rich of a town build to put their beggars in, Old men and old women and children, born in poverty or born without knowledge of their parents, they build a house, and they hire a man to keep that house, and they pay so much money to the man for keeping it. If the man is a good man, and they pay him enough, the poor are well fed. They have beds to sleep in, they have warm clothes, and are comfortable. But if the man is a bad man, he takes the money the town gives him for his own use, and the paupers are starved, and they have straw for beds, and they have rags for clothing. I lived two years in a poor house, and for months at a time neither old nor young had a mouthful of meat, only coarse bread and potatoes, John Norton, and we slept on straw, and the straw wasn't clean at that, and we had nothing but rags to cover us. We had no medicine if we were sick, and if one of us died they put him in a pine coffin and buried him in the pauper's corner in the graveyard, without even a prayer. 
and many a Sunday have I sat shivering in my rags, crouched under the south side of the poorhouse, that I might get the little warmth of the winter sun and hear the church bells ring three miles away. And I knew the rich, in their silks and their warm garments, were walking up the carpeted aisle and seating themselves in their cushioned pews and thanking God for their blessings, while the minister told them of his love for man. But three miles away we paupers were starving and freezing. What did you do in a poorhouse? said the trapper. We made baskets and brooms and whiplashes, answered the man. And the man who kept us sold what we made and kept the money while we starved. Friend, said the trapper, upon whose mind the vivid description of his strange guest was making a profound impression, the man who kept you was a thief. The Lord will get into him in the judgment. I certainly hope I may be there when he takes the vagabond in hand. Perhaps I can get a lick at him off and on in the scrimmage. He was a church member, John Norton, said the man. A quiet but intense bitterness and sarcasm with which the simple words were said were lost on the comprehension of the trapper, for his mind did not understand the relationship and the obligations of charity affirmed in the statement. He looked at his guest a moment with a puzzled expression on his face and said, "'I don't understand you, friend.' The man was not slow to perceive the confusion in the trapper's mind or his total ignorance of the church as an institution in civilized communities from whence it sprang. But fearing that he might be mistaken, should he assume the trapper's entire ignorance of such a relation, he asked, Do you know what a church is, John Norton? There's a preaching station down in the valley of the Mohawk, at the south end of the woods, where I heard a missioner preach four year agone. But I didn't concede he knowed just what he was saying, for he yelled like an engine in an ambushment, and acted sorter unnatural-like in his talking. Me and the pups did the best we could to follow the trail of his arguing, but we couldn't exactly tell where he fetched up, nor the idea the council had when it broke up. No, I don't concede I know what a church member is. Leastwise, the missioner didn't make it clear to me down on the Mohawk. A church member, John Norton is a man who professes to love God, who professes to love men, and, the man continued bitterly, the keeper of the poorhouse who starved us and stole our earnings was a church member. The man was a vagabond, exclaimed the trapper. I get the idea now. I caught a church member, as you call him, on the line of my traps over there under Whiteface only a month ago. I had seed his tracks off and on ever since I blazed the line through and I knowed he was a church member by the way he walked, for he didn't walk straight and honest-like, like a man who made the line and had a right to be on it. But he sort of sneaked along and stopped behind stumps and trees as if he knowed he was doing the devil's errand, and was afeard an honest man might catch him at it. I bore the thievings of the scamp until it got unreasonable, and I made an ambush for him by an otter slide. I sought a big bear trap at the bottom of the slide, and I burrowed into the ground at the top, and I put the leaves and the mosses and some dried sticks over my head in a judicious manner, so I doubt if even a Huron could have seed the trick of the thing. I knowed he'd come to the top of the slide in his thieving search for an honest man's skins, and sure enough he did. Yes, he come to the top of the slide, so I could touch him with the muzzle of my rifle and he bent over to look at the trap in the water, and he found it, yes, he found it, 
for I'd just reached out the muzzle of my rifle and give him a punch in the back that sent him down the slide as if the devil were arter him, and the trap took good hold at the bottom, and I had the vagabond in the judgment for sure. What did you do to him? said the man, whose face showed that he sensed both the humor of the old man's blunder as to what constituted a church member, and also the predicament of the thief. I preached to him, said the trapper. Yes, I preached to the scamp. I made him say the commandments with the muzzle of my rifle to quicken his memory, and the vagabond showed good memory for certain, for he started at the beginning fair and square, and he went through to the end without a slip, which I certainly doubt I could do, although I be an honest man, and he didn't lose any time in putting the words in either. But I conceit that the water and the rifle helped the vagabond, not to speak of the trap. Arter he had said the commandments, I helped him out and eased off the trap, and we had a little more talking, not to speak of a little acting that I throwed in without any charge. What did you do to him? said the man whose face was now thoroughly relaxed in evident enjoyment of the old trapper's experience. I cut a wife, said the trapper, and I learned him what the commandments meant and what a vagabond can expect when he breaks them. I educated him a few minutes better than any missioner could, for he owned up before the wife got limber that he knowed the wickedness of stealing, and he swore he'd never touch another man's skins while he lived on the earth. But I don't concede he kept his word, for you could see by the look in his eyes that he was a natural liar as well as a thief, and I dare say he's selling skins today in the settlements that he never trapped. But he never put his thieving foot on that line again, and I doubt if he'll ever touch another fur in a trap that has John Norton on it. This episode had evidently been a relief to the feelings of the stranger, for his face had lost its set expression, and the gloom on his brow had given place to a peaceful light. He could evidently recall his past without pain, dire as it had been, and speak of it without bitterness, for in a moment he turned brightly to the old trapper and asked, Would you like to know how I came to leave the poorhouse, John Norton? Certainly, answered the trapper. Certainly. You was in the devil's own hole, for sure. And that we the church member and the straw, and the starving and the freezing, you had a hard time on it, as I conceit. Yes, you had a hard time on it. And I would certainly like to hear how the Lord of mercy got you out of the scrape. You may well say the Lord of mercy, John Norton, answered the man. For he did it, but he did it through my natural gifts, through the powers he has given me, the powers that had come to me from him through the mother and father I have never seen, whose love and whose name I have alike missed. I don't understand you, said the trapper. I will tell you, said the man. I was born with the love of knowledge in me, John Norton, the love to know how things were made and how things could be made. I used to open the nuts that I might know how the shells were constructed, and from what point the kernel started to grow. I used to split the apples open before I ate them to find which way their seeds lay, and to learn how they grew round the center. And I used to wonder what colored their skins, and made them so red and bright. I used to lie by the anthills in the warm sun, and see the little busy things come and go. And I noticed how they carried their loads, and longed to get inside their mounds and see what they did, how they made their chambers and kept their archways from falling. I have lain by the hour in the leaves and seen the great yellow spiders weave their webs, 
and hang their filmy traps in the air that they might catch their food. I climbed a thousand trees and studied a thousand nests, and I found that each bird had his own way and fashion of making his home, and saw that they could do things that man could not do, for I used to work for hours trying to place the hairs and the mosses, the bits of bark and the stolen string, as a bird would place them, and I found I could not do it, John Norton. No, said the trapper, the creatures that the Lord has made be wiser than men out of their fashion. Man can trap a beaver, but he can't build his mound, and a wolf will find a way when the hunter and the hound both will lose themselves in the woods. Yes, the creatures the Lord has made be wiser than men. It is even so, said the man, and as a boy I grew to know it. I did not know at the time that I was a student, but I studied much before I saw a book. I don't doubt it, said the trapper. Books is good enough in their way, but I never seed more than two or three men that had studied books that wasn't dreadfully ignorant. I don't know about that, returned the man. Books contain the knowledge of the world. Books are the mirrors that reflect the learning of the ages. Books are treasure houses in which are stored the golden sayings of all times. The first joy that came to my life, John Norton, was when I learned to read. An old pauper woman in the poorhouse taught me the letters, and the first book that I read was the Bible. It was a good book to begin with, for certain, said the trapper. It's a good book to end with, too, said the man. It may be said the trapper, but the church member and the trap knew the commandments word for word. The illusion of the trapper was unnoticed by his guest. At least, he resumed his conversation as if it had not been made. The first book I read was the Bible. It took me a year to read it through, but it made the year happy. I read it not for its wisdom, but for the strange stories that were in it, and the things that delight a boy. But when I was done, I knew how to read and I had a longing to read, a longing I cannot describe. Did you ever long to know a thing, John Norton? Certain, answered the trapper. I run across a track in the snow last winter that made me uneasy, for the track was a track of a panther, but it walked with the legs of a man. Leastways it made but one track, where it ought to make two, and the pups was uneasy too, for they wouldn't follow the thing. I trailed it for two days, for I had sought my mind on knowing what the creature was that the pups wouldn't follow, and whose track didn't tell me his name. And the second day, just as it was getting dark, I come upon him, and it was standing up like a man, and I must say it started me a little, for I come on it suddenly, and I met it face to face. But I drawed on it, for I was certain it wasn't anything human, and I lined the sights to send the lead between the eyes. My finger was on the trigger, and the pressure was getting steady, for I'd never seen such a thing afore, and I was determined to know what the creature was, and what was it, John Norton? exclaimed the man excitedly, for the narration of the old trapper's strange experience had startled him, as well it might, for who could guess what a creature might be whose track was the track of a panther, but that walked with the legs of a man? and at the point at which the trapper was standing face to face with the strange creature was about to explode his peace, he was unable to restrain his curiosity longer, and had broken in upon the trapper's narration suddenly, with the question, What was it, John Norton? End of chapter 2